Read along with me, if you would, please. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So, the, literally, by the way, his nostrils glowed. That's, I can only think of those old cartoons where a bull gets angry, and anyways, you get the idea. His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some from the outskirts of the camp. Although you know that the word some there is in italics, you can see that. Then the people cried out to Moshe. And when Moshe prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So they called the name of the place Tevera. Would you say Tevera? Oh, come on, it's Hebrew, you can't say Tevera. Tevera. The word means like burning. So imagine you just bit into one of those peppers. Tevera. Your turn. Come on now. Tevera. Thank you. That's a little better. There we go. Because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much on this day, this beautiful 4th of May 2014, that we could cry out to you and seek your face, love on you, appreciate you, draw near to you. Father, thank you. You've made yourself accessible. Thank you, Lord, for the way you reveal yourself. Thank you for the way that you show yourself strong. Thank you for the gift that it is to turn to you today. Lord, I pray we would get it. We would understand it today, deeper and more meaningfully than ever before, that the application would be profound and sublime for each of us. Lord, we need it. We definitely need this to speak to our hearts today. So, Lord, may your word burst open and come alive. May it profoundly affect every one of us. Lord, may our ears and our eyes and our hearts be open and speak to every one of us in our heart of hearts, in our minds, Lord. Lord, speak where we need to hear you speak today. And, Lord, if there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this day be the day of their salvation. We commit this to you, Lord. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, that every one of us would be personally spoken to the way you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Not a guy with a mic, not a guy with a lame coat who waves it and wags it on TV or whatever. Just because I have a mic doesn't make me important. I have Jesus. That's what makes me important. No. I want you to recognize here that if we read this and this was the first verses in the Bible, we'd get this idea that God was a bit temperamental. Somebody complained a little bit and God went, BAM! Who's next? And you're like, hmm, I'm not saying anything. But I want you to get a little bit of the record of what we're looking at here. By the way, this whole thing starts back in the book of Exodus when a nation, well, I should say it always starts in the book of Genesis, where God had promised the man back in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of many nations. By chapter 15, this man, Avram, soon to be Abraham, would split this animal, and then God would walk through it, declaring his end of the covenant. God would consume that animal so that Abraham could now walk through it himself. And that always seems to be the way that God does things, is that it's always relying on his faithfulness, not on ours. And for that I say, hallelujah. And God had said, in confirming this covenant, that you will be a slave in a land that's not your own, but four generations later, you'll not only no longer be a slave, you'll walk out a rich man. And that's a bit of a strange riddle. 
So you start counting generations. Four generations from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the nation goes into Egypt because of a famine. Wasn't the first famine, by the way, that brought that nation in one manner or another there. Abraham himself went to Egypt on a famine. As a matter of fact, brings back a cute little souvenir named Hagar. Perhaps you're familiar with that story and what happened there. Be careful what you take from the places you visit. It was a maidservant from which Ishmael come from. Now, four generations in, Joseph has helped the Pharaoh. He's the second in command. More press is given to him than anyone but Moses in all of the Torah. Even more than Abraham. Because his very character and nature is so similar to our Jesus. Defied by his brothers, sold as a slave, left for dead, accused wrongly, thrown in the pit, raised up from the pit, second in command, saves first the Gentile world and then the Jewish world out of the restoration. It sounds pretty familiar of a story. But then the whole family, because of this famine, is brought into Egypt. And as they multiply, Pharaoh was intimidated starts killing the children after putting them in forced labor. Four generations would happen, and just like God promised, four generations from then would be Moshe or Moses. Drawn out is his name. Now God would raise this man up, raised in the household of Pharaoh, at a time when they were killing all of the boys of Egypt. It's interesting, if you go to the ultra-Orthodox communities today in Israel, you'll find something a bit interesting. We were at one that, by the, oh, by the way, quick shameless plug, it does look like the Israel trip is a go. If you're interested, it is in January of the following year, and I'll tell you more about it. It's about 1,000 pounds plus flights. Now, with that said, done with my shameless commercial. <clears throat> at a time when unprecedented persecution was happening to God's people, the destruction of all those people. Moses was hid. In Kephar Kedem, which, is, which literally means ancient village in Hebrew, the, uh, it's an ultra-Orthodox community. We were there a few times ago, and there was this beautiful little girl, beautiful long hair, about two and a half years old, and um, we're kind of just bouncing around with all of us giggling and laughing and so forth as we are making our pita and grinding wheat and doing the kind of things to get that feel, get your hands dirty, get a little bit of that feel, what it would be like 2,000 years ago. And all of a sudden, uh, just as, the, as we're making our bread over the side of it, she stands up and starts to pee. She was no girl at all. She just had this really, really long hair. And I started to ask, now, is that normal? And strangely enough, the friend Menachem, who runs the place, he's a friend of us, he said, you know, actually, in ultra-Orthodox communities, we do not cut children's hair for the first three years. And then I go, could it be? And he's like, but we don't know why we do it. And I'm like, could it be because of Moses? Because they were only killing boys. Huh, something to think about, nonetheless. So, with this, Moses is drawn out. It said, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, they saw he was a beautiful child and acted in faith and saved him. Now, praise God, he wasn't an ugly child. I don't know what would have happened. So, nonetheless, they rescue him. He's raised up. He's, he's, he's left afloat in an ark, discovered by the Pharaoh's wife, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, sorry, who adopts. Uh, this child as her own. Important to note that Pharaoh's daughter was the one responsible for picking the next Pharaoh. That's why a lot of Pharaoh's sons married their sisters. Kind of a political weird thing. I agree it's a bit skanky, but that's the way it worked. Now, nonetheless, uh, in all of that, now you've got this adopted boy in this situation in competition with other children as well. 
And in, in all of that, Moses goes out to take a look at his Hebrews, apparently aware of his heritage. And as he does, he sees them getting beat, ultimately stands to rescue them and kills an Egyptian. Very, by the way, for those who want to tell you it was an accident, read the text. It says he looked this way and that and then killed the Egyptian. I could tell you having children, when a child looks this way and that, it's no accident. No accident. Buries him in the sand. Now Moses does have a heart to deliver, but he's doing it way the wrong way. And by the way, for some of you, that will be a lesson to learn. You have the heart of God. You want to see God's will done, but you may not necessarily want to do it God's way. And you have a history of dead Egyptians, whatever that metaphor applies to you. And in the end of it all, the Lord says, don't worry. I've got a special school for you. It's not a one- or a two-year academy. It's a 40-year academy. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's a long enrollment. And Moses has to learn how to become a shepherd for very good reason. Because Moses is going to become shepherd of the only thing more weak and more foolish than the lambs he would be following. And that's people. We are more harmless, more determined to be on our own, and more dumb to do so than even the sheep that Moses would have protected before that. Now, if this is one of those places where you're like, now, Pastor Tony, that's bad for my self-esteem. Can I just say, Jesus died for you. That's where you need your esteem. Everything else is going to mess you up. Let's move forward. Now, you know, anyways, so follow me on this. So Moses ultimately gets these 40 years, learns how to be a shepherd, and then is sent back to those people who don't believe that he's called to be the deliverer, even if he does a couple really cool little tricks. Including, by the way, throwing down his staff, which he more than likely had for nearly, if not all, of those 40 years. And it became a snake. Now, that's a bit of a wacky thing. And then he has to grab it by the tail. Now, I want you to recognize that if I were an under-shepherd, I would know that quite well. When we go through ravines and, and narrow places, and I need to follow my master shepherd, he offers me the end of his staff, for which I grab a hold of, to follow. So I get the idea of grabbing it by the tail. Grabbing it by the tail is saying, Moses, though you're going to lead, you are not the chief shepherd. You are just the following under-shepherd in this. I understand that as a pastor. All a pastor is is a shepherd. But I've got to grab the tail of the staff, not the front of it. Or I might get the other side of the staff the other way. Now, please hear me. As he does, God then systematically disqualifies all of the gods of Egypt so that you know that there's no one else to worship but the living God. And God has a way of doing that in your life, too. The problem is, for some of us, it may take 40 years as well. As we watch God show us money ain't going to do it, popularity ain't going to do it, fame, power, success at the world's eyes, getting the right relationship, having a couple children, getting the right house, living in Chelsea or whatever it is, rooting for the right team and having them win. You know, in the end of it all, it's just not going to do it. And when God disqualifies all those gods, he keeps reminding you he's still there as a choice. And we keep like, trying to look past them. Like God says, a stone of stumbling. Think about what that is. That means you keep trying to get over it, but you keep stubbing your toe every time you do. And maybe that's your life right now. You're trying to get over it, but you're not getting there because you're, you're still not convinced that all the gods of Egypt are really worthless. Here's the good news. You will. But can I humbly say, when you do, will you choose the living God, please? Because you'll still be there waiting patiently. Now, here's the good news. You could choose them today, avoid all of the scars, and stop wasting time, but that's your choice. It all depends if you're a pragmatist. Now, 
Moses finally does. The firstborn dies. The Lamb of God is sacrificed. The people are delivered out of it, and the people start to leave. And that begins now our adventure with Moses leading his new flock of sheep, known as the Israelites. Now, please understand that the new flock of sheep are no different from anyone else. If Moses would have delivered the Caribbeans, the Jamaicans, I don't think it would have been, it might have been a little bit different in regards to some of the language, but it would have been no different in regards to the results. If he would have delivered simply the British, it would have been only different in the sense that more than likely there would be more whispering and less outward complaining. If it had delivered the Americans, there would have been more outward complaining and less whispering. But it doesn't matter what group, we can blame it, but put yourself in this group for a second. Follow me on this for a second. Now flip to give you an idea. We have just watched God take down every God in Egypt, every false God in Egypt, because there were no real ones there, including Pharaoh himself, who was responsible for what was called the Ka. And the Ka was, in essence, the order of the universe. And they thought that it was Pharaoh's job to hold it. Now, if you don't believe in God, more than likely you know this too, because you're trying to keep your old universe in order. Good luck with that. You know what you are in? Deep Ka. That's what you're in. Or you can hand it over to Jesus and let him deliver you. Follow me in it. Finally, we leave. And as we leave, let's get a little bit of the understanding of this relationship. Put yourself in it. Now, what I love about our cosmopolitan fellowship is that... We, the only face we have is Jesus. So it isn't like our face has a color, our face has a shape, our face has an age. I mean, we blow every demographic survey. People just, they forget it. They just throw out the whole survey before they walk in here. Praise the Lord. But I want you to realize, let's put ourselves in, the, in these people's feet for a second. Chapter 14, Exodus. Go there, quick. Let's walk through a few scriptures to get you an idea what it's looked like since the beginning. One of the first recorded conversations between the people in Moses, chapter 14, verse 11. Look at it with me. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? How is that for a great start? Therefore you've dealt like with us this way, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is this not what we told you when we were in Egypt, when we said, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. How is that the start? I want to remind you, this is, you are pulling out of the driveway. The kids are in the car. The kids are in the car. Everything's packed in the boot. And it's, you have not, your tires have not hit the street yet. I'm like, didn't we tell you we didn't want to go? And you're going to drive 1,900 miles. Have a lovely day. But there's something deep I don't want you to miss in this. Their back is to the sea, uh, to the Red Sea. Their face is to the Egyptians. That's, by the way, a very dangerous place to be looking. But this is what they said. Bondage is better than death. That's what they said, isn't it? Bondage is better than death. Please hear me. Our representation of Jesus isn't simply that he died for you. 
Our representation of Jesus is that he died for you and rose again. Hey, you could have a relative die for you. But they didn't rise again. We don't worship an ideal or a person who lived past tense. He is the one who was and is and is still coming. I mean, he's still now. And the point of all of that, beyond I mean, uh, the implications are multiple, but, but walk with me on this for a second. The whole idea of it is the cross is where all the bad stuff ended. The resurrection is where the good begins. Are you following me on that? The cross is where the bad stuff ended. The resurrection is where the good stuff begins. And if we go out there and just say, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, that's a good start. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves... What person in the world, in their right mind, is going to go, perfect, that's what I want? Because what you're telling them is, look, if you give your life to Jesus, they're no, they're, well, they're not totally dumb. They're going to go, you know, I know that probably means I shouldn't get drunk anymore. I shouldn't go have sex with everyone anymore. I shouldn't go clubbing anymore. Whatever it is. But that's all the fun they know. Because all they see is the cross. They don't see the resurrection. And you're like, look, you need to give your life to Jesus. Why? Because you're going to hell. So here's the problem with that. Though that is part of the comment. But here's the problem with that. If it's all about just getting out of hell, then why don't I wait till I'm sure I'm going to die, right? And that's what we preach, even in our behavior sometimes, with the idea that, well, God's for saving eternally, but the world's for fun until then? But let me be honest with you. We party to forget, but we celebrate to remember. I have nothing left to try to leave and forget. It's all been washed by the blood of Jesus. I have never had more fun in my life than walking with Him. It doesn't get better than this. And I've had the money, I've had the fame, I've had the whatever, I've had it all. To where I'm like, wow, I don't even know where to spend this. Now these days, that's kind of a joke. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know where it is to spend. <laughs> but you know what? Clearly that can't be the case because I'm more stoked today than I was then, so it can't be about money. I know what it's like to hide out from people because at a particular time, we were fairly high profile before I knew the Lord. And I was more miserable then than I'd ever been. It can't be about that. I can guarantee you, when somebody threw a contact in front of me and it had more zeros than I could count at the moment, they were all just zeros. It's like, I, what do I want this for? So more people can know who you are. I'm not happy with the people who know I am now. Please hear me in this. The Lord desperately wants to show you that the cross is the first half of the gospel where Jesus died for you to pay for your sins and then rose again to make you a new creation. Otherwise, why do we have to declare him as Lord if he just died? Well, sure, we'll go with the Savior part, but the Lord part has to happen if he's still alive. Otherwise, what are you doing following somebody that's still dead? How exactly is he giving you commands? That's a little weird. So please hear me in this. What these people are saying is, I would rather be in bondage than just die. And I'd say, I'd rather you see what the power of the resurrection is, but you've got to get through the cross to get there. And what you realize is, if your only two choices are bondage and death, bondage doesn't sound as bad. For some. Let's be honest, though. There are others. They hate their bondage so much, they would just rather die. But could you imagine if you're like, you know what? Your bondage is unnecessary. You could actually let this go and see a life of total freedom 
Well, that's a different story altogether. See, but that's what they can see. And let me tell you why. Because, hear me, they've never been there before. This generation had never been anything but slaves. Their parents had never been anything but slaves. Their grandparents had never been anything but slaves. And as a result of that, that's what their family knew. That's what they knew. I was born a slave. I've walked a slave. I've lived a slave. I know the emptiness. I know the fear. I know the futility. I know what it's like to hurt at the end of the day. I know I'm going to have to get up tomorrow and get whipped again one more time and get beat again one more time and feel less of a man than when I go to sleep that night and feel less in control and feel more an addict and feel more a slave and feel more helpless and more empty and more fear and more everything, but nothing good. Is that what your life is? Because that is your life? Well, then you definitely need to know the death of Jesus to let that die and the resurrection to see a brand new life. But our whole new relationship, come on, let's go, is going to start with let's go from this bondage. And they're like, yes, but then we're going to die. Now, can I just say, if you were to say that to me, I'm going to say, yes, you are. You're nasty, rotten, filthy, slave of a person that you were. Dies. Hallelujah. And on the other side of that resurrection is a person that's free. Listen, that doesn't put you first anymore, puts others first instead, serves and prays and celebrates with hands that are free to be raised because they're no longer in shackles and feet that are free to dance because they're no longer in chains and a heart that's free to praise because it's no longer covered in darkness and a mouth that is free to declare His goodness of how He called us out of the darkness into His glorious light because it's true. And as we start to follow Moses, the whole part of the meaning is, are you kidding me? You know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing the death part. Yeah, you probably are. So you watch that lift. Today, many of you will get on one to go to a, maybe, you might even get on the underground. Tomorrow might be a little harder. All green. Buses might be a little bit more full. But many of those lifts, you know, one end opens so everything gets out so that the other end can open so that everything can get in. Now, some of you, more than likely, aren't going to go and skip around to the side you should and you go in the out. But let's say in a perfect world, everything leaves before things come in. That was the idea the way it was designed, right? So was your heart. And you want God to fill it with joy? And you want God to fill it with peace? And you want God to fill it with hope? And you want God to fill it with passion? But he opens the door, the side where things get out, and you're like, no, I kind of like this stuff. And God's like, well, it has to get out if I'm going to put something in there. You're like, but if it goes out, what's going to come in? God's like, do you trust me? You said faith, right? You said you trust me. It's like, well, so you're in that questionable relationship. So you're in that weird kind of situation with business, or you're kind of dealing with this way, and you're tottering on this on the internet and you're playing with this and you're drinking a little of this and smoking a little of this and having a little of this and checking this thing out a little bit and all of that's filling the lift and it's filling the lift and as it's filling the lift you want God's peace and God's like you need to empty some of this out before we start doing that and that's the death part because that stuff has to die so that the hand could be released to receive what God wants to put in it in its place hey let me tell you half the, half the lift full is still a waste, in my opinion. That thing needs to be emptied so it could be filled with all that the Lord has. Wouldn't you want that? 
And listen, all of what God has isn't telling God what God's will is so that he should give it to you. It's actually, no, listen, faith is not moving God's hands to yours. Faith opens your hands to receive what he already has in his. Because I guarantee you it's best. So let's move forward because we probably should. Now listen, once we walk through the Red Sea, now you can see why we're only going through three verses, right? Once we walk through the Red Sea, God takes, listen, first he has to show you that the enemy has truly been defeated. First he has to show you that the enemy is no longer a threat. And as he starts to walk us through that, and understand the way God set it up was the stage was the Red Sea, so that he could say, look now, look at the enemy floating in the Dead Sea, look at them sink, look at them die, they will never be a threat again. And God had to do that or we would live our whole life waiting for the Egyptians to show up one more time. But once he walks through there then, God starts the whole dubious task now of revealing my every appetite and showing, listen, how he can meet my every and everyday need. And that's where we're at. But once God starts to show that he can meet my every and everyday need, then what he starts to do is he starts to reveal, because this is part of what God does, he starts to reveal the divide between, hear me, my needs and my wants. And that's the chapter we're in. There are things we need. And there are things we want that we say we need. Amoka. I guarantee you, none of you will die without a mocha. I need a mocha. I need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I need the new iPhone. Because I want to be able to ask Siri questions like, what's your favorite color? I need, and see, understand, until we start reconciling these things, we really won't be ready to enter the land God had intended for us. Does that make sense? See, God has a place for every one of us, and it is a place of abject celebration, total peace and contentedness, and absolute joy. And you know what really makes me sad? Is many of us may never know it. Because we'll agree with the ideals, but refuse to empty the lift. So God starts to show us, revealing appetite after appetite. But I remind you, this is our relationship between Moses and the people. Flip to Exodus chapter 15 now. Verse 24. We've now made it to Mara. Some of you already know what that means from the story of Ruth. Verse 24 says, And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Understand that no Hebrew, there are no questions in Hebrew. It's the same words, it's just your inflection. Literally, what you're saying is, we're going to drink? That's in his face. So he cried out to the Lord, which, by the way, listen to the difference. The people cried out to Moses, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree because the water was bitter. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And by the way, of course, we know the idea of throwing the cross into the bitterness of your own life. And by the way, listen how fundamental that is if we're going to follow him to the place he's called us to. That bitterness is just unresolved. Well, think about it. It's unforgiveness. 
And you go, there's no possible way I could forgive that person. And I might agree with you. There might be no possible way you can forgive that person. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well then, guess what? The one who forgave Hitler, the one who forgave Charles Manson, Rex Allen Krebs, the Night Stalker, the one who forgave the bombers on both sides of the pond, who died for every sin of mankind, that man lives inside of you. That God lives inside of you and wants to take you over. And if your water is bitter, which, by the way, I remind you, without water, there's no life. Throw in the tree. Throw in that cross. Because that's one of the things that gets to die there. But the people complained. The word complained, by the way, is the word loon. Can you say loon? It means literally to be obstinate. In other words, to get cocky. To get in someone's face, stick your face in there a little bit and be like, so we're going to drink? Hmm? 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 Drink? Loon. Oh, that's chapter 15. So we've had 14, 15. Let's look at 16. 16, verse 1. From there, by the way, as God makes the water sweet, they go to a place of palm trees. That's shade. That's lots of water. It's called Elim. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, they took their journey from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Any of you go, uh oh, wilderness of Sin, probably not a good place. Sin means barrenness, by the way, in this case, which is important. Which is between Elim and Sinai, where we'll get the Ten Commandments. On the 15th day of the second month, that means, by the way, we've been out of Egypt a month and a half after departing from their land. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained. Oh, my goodness. Imagine two million people complaining, 2,500 people complaining against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by flesh pots, when we ate our bread to the full. But now you've brought us forth into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. And that complained word is the same. Loon. They're in your face again. They crawled in your grill. And went, "Mm -mm, I ain't eating. Yo, yo, where's my food? What, do I look heavy to you? You didn't say anything about a fast. See, understand something. What the Lord is doing is quite simple. He's revealing an appetite. It's like, why didn't God just feed them the moment that they left? I'll be honest. Because they had to identify the hunger and then realize where is the only place where it's going to be met. So maybe you have this appetite and it's not going away. And you're trying everything. Dot com. You're trying whatever you can to get it. Until you hand it to the Lord, that appetite's going to be there and it's going to be there and it's going to be there. And it's there for the Lord to reveal to say... I want to be your everything. So that's chapter 16. But let's go on to chapter 17. Maybe that's better. (laughs) In chapter 17, now we've moved our way to a place called Meribah or Masa. It's called the Horeb in Rephidim. So the people, says in verse 3, thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses 
and said, Oh, that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst. In case it wasn't enough for us and our children, we had to bring our cows in it too. Moses, we read in verse 4, cries out to the Lord and he says, What will I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Hadn't they already reconciled the water thing? No, because before it was bitter. Now they ain't finding any. But what's interesting is nowhere do we ever read that the people actually cry out to the Lord for it. What they're doing is they're crying out to to Moses for it. Ultimately, this is where Moses will smack the rock and he'll call the place contention or testing. Those are our words, Meribah and Matzah. From there, they will go to Rephidim, where they will have to fight and from Rephidim to Sinai, which is where they received the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is up there in chapter 32, of course, there they are with the cow, golden calf that they've made. But up there, and please hear me, because now we're getting to our text. When Moses was up there, it was more than just, here's your laws. In that same conversation, God said in chapter 25, Now make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. That has not happened since Eden. And God says, I really want to be with you. That's my whole point of this, is I really want to be with you. That's what I really want. Now, all of a sudden, everything changes. And please hear me. Please hear me. Here's the way it works. God took you out of your bondage. And as he took you out of your bondage, he started to to show you how the enemy really has been defeated. And as he shows you how the enemy has really been defeated, then he starts to reveal appetites and show how he can meet those appetites. Every one of them. If you enter into a relationship in a state of hunger, you are in a dangerous place. Hey, the hungrier you are, the worse you'll eat. Let's be honest. And the same happens. But if you enter in a state of overflow, you'll actually enter in to serve. Imagine two people in a state of overflow joined together for the purpose of serving the Lord and enjoying each other. Could you imagine what that would be like? I kind of know. Please hear me. As God reveals those appetites and starts to meet them, He says, now that I've shown that I can take care of these needs, now I want to be in the center of your life. Now, he's always wanted to be. But the difference now is that we have no reason for him not to. If he really meets every need, if he really quenches every appetite, then he has to now become the center. Are you following me? And if he has to become the center, it's amazing what starts to happen. Interesting. God bless you. And I mean that word for word. As, you, as the Lord becomes the center of your camp, let me tell you the two things we start to notice. One is that the camp gets organized. Did you notice that? All of a sudden, all of the tribes have their places. I was before that point, it was a who knows where little Judah is and oh damn he's probably running around somewhere else now all of a sudden everybody has their place everybody has a standard we have a way to march we have a way to camp but the one thing God did not say was where you camped in proximity to the center he says you you three tribes you're on the east you three tribes you're on the west you three tribes you're in the south you guys you guys are over in the north but he didn't say where in the north you had to be 
And hear me, the moment that God comes to the center of your camp, the moment God comes to the center of my camp, you start to see some interesting things. What you start to see is what draws near to the center and what distances itself. And every one of us, that's what's going to happen. I mean, all of a sudden the Lord goes, boom, and He puts Himself in the middle of your life. And some people are like, whoa, I'm so drawn. And other people are like, "Mm, man, you used to be fun. Does that make sense? What's interesting is, look at the text now. Go there, Numbers chapter 11. It says that the people complained, right? And it actually, God's anger was aroused. By the way, later on, next week, we'll read that God's anger was really aroused. This was a precursor for God's greater anger later. Here's my question to you. The people complain, and God responds with, right? Where does he fry? What does it say in the text? Where? The outskirts. Don't miss that. Where was the complaining? The outskirts. That becomes the point. When the Lord becomes in the center, listen, the more you move towards the center, the louder the praise gets. The more the contentedness gets. The more the peace settles. But the more you move away from that camp, the more discontent and the louder and the greater the complaining gets. Does that make sense? And hey, that's not just a church. That's my heart. That's your heart. And we hear it. And here's the thing. Our mouths will actually betray what we think is the truth, but really is telling the truth. Like, we'll say, yeah, things are fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. And then you're like, but, complain, 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 complain. And you're like, hmm. What if we, as a group, were wholly irritants to each other, and we actually use the same language and say, you know, honey, you actually kind of sound like you're a little bit far from the center of the camp right now. I think we get what that means, doesn't it? And you'd be like, no. And you know what's going to happen? Walk away and go, you hear what that person said? And we complain about them. Well, they told me I was on the outside. And then if we, all, if we all join hands to do it together, you'd say, yeah, well, it sounds like you are on the outside of the camp. Don't complain to me. I'm on the inside of the camp. You want to come? I'm going to the inside of the camp. You go to the inside of the camp. I don't want to be there. That's where praise is happening. You ever been in a situation where your heart's so nasty and full of just nasty stuff that what happens people start praising you like, eh. But I can't look like this on the outside. So I'm like, we stand and lift up our hands. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. Hallelujah. 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 Stop looking. Uh, and you watch this. You see couples, man, they just, you could tell they just had a fight. No, I'm sorry. They just show up at church anyways, please. But, you know, and they're like, looking, they're like, you know, and you know what they're doing? They're like, I can't wait till we get to the message because there's going to be a convicting moment. I'm going to say, mm, see, that was it. That was it. That was you. He was talking to you. That's the whole, that's the whole spirit. Mm. You got it. You know it. And you watch that. And it's like they start by sitting really far apart, but they know they can't sit too far apart because if someone sits in between and people go, what's happening over there? Kind of, and then they scoot a little closer so they can nudge a little bit more privately. Just kind of, yeah, that was for you. Please hear me. What if God were at the center of your camp? I mean, really at the center, what things in your life would make its way to the outside? See, if I saw that as my heart, I would see such a fantastic mercy in what God just did. 
Last week, we started this whole thing on a trumpet-ready life. If you remember about letting go of our holdabs. And if you didn't get that, there's a message online. It's free, so I'm not selling anything. But this week, can I say, as that trumpet-ready life, here's step two. And step two is, God, fry the outskirts of my camp. That might be relationships. That might be something I just I, it's clear I shouldn't be in. But I'm pretending like it's okay. And then God set up camp. And all of a sudden, it's like, hmm, this, this doesn't work anymore. This isn't fun anymore. I'm not enjoying this anymore. But I'm pretending like it because I don't want people to not like me. What in the world are we doing? Please hear me. It tells us that the people complain and it displeases the Lord. I mean, did God even have to tell us that? Did God have to tell us that it displeased them? Do you think that God was like, oh, look, they're complaining. Oh, look at my kids. They're complaining. <sighs> Imagine the deeper you looked into my heart, the more you saw the Lord clear. Wouldn't that be beautiful? But if the Lord made his home inside, wouldn't that, wouldn't that make sense? But please hear me. We are almost at the cusp of the most definitive failure in all of Israel's history. You see, though they went to the calf thing, God actually showed greater grace for that than what he's going to do here in a moment. And I'll tell you why. Because all they were doing was trying to resort back to the Egypt they knew. They just tried to bring it with them. That whole golden calf thing, ground to powder, God's like, okay, look, I could wipe you all out, but I'm not going to. But when he brings them to the place and says, look, at this is what I have for you now. It's everything I promised. This is, can I just say, this is the abundant life that I promised in John 10 that you know you should have, but maybe you're just figuring out why in the world you don't have it. And they send spies in. And it says, this is actually better than God said it was. This is actually better. But then well, you know what the people say? Even though it's everything and more that you promised, it's still not worth the effort. Isn't that what they're saying? There are battles to be fought, and I don't think I'll make them through it. I might die in that battle. Might I say, you should die in that battle. Because death is half the story. And if I'm going to live on this now three-day journey that we've taken from where we were in Sinai now, we've made our way, it tells us this was the first time now that we've actually gone as a camp like this. Can I just say, listen, please hear me, and we'll go through our three verses. Complaining is the opposite of praise. Think about it. Complaining is actually like a punch is to a hug. Complaining is the opposite of praise. It is, at least the way the Lord has shown me, complaining is accusations with makeup on. Think about it. Because to complain, you're accusing someone. More than likely, it'll end up at the feet of the Lord. And no matter how much you doll it up and put enough foundation and concealer and all of it, it, God knows. He sees through all of that and recognizes it's just an accusation. It is a declaration of dissatisfaction to my Creator is what it is. If Paul had learned how to be content in all circumstances, how could you be content and complain? And this is the precursor to yielding to intense craving because that's what's going to happen next week. And after we yield to intense craving... Even Moses, his sister's going to jump in on it. And then we're going to look and go, I'm not going in there. Even though that's where God had for us. And we're going to have to wander around. You know what God did? Then he says, listen, you're afraid to die. You are going to wander around. Listen, listen, till that old man finally dies and I can get you in with the new man. That's what the whole wandering is, isn't it? It's the old man dying because the old man is not going to enjoy the promised land. 
It's the new man that God ordained there. Hey, that's the case in every marriage. It's amazing when two people meet and then they want to get married because the two of them have to die to become better people because their old people actually make terrible husbands and wives. So when the people complained, the word complain now is a different word. The word there is the word anon, and it literally means to outward moan, to beat your breast and go, oh. So it went from this kind of obstinate in your face moment, now no, oh. And two million people, 25, two and a half million people going, oh. By the middle of this chapter, what we'll read is that everybody's at their tent complaining like this. Could you imagine? Hey, you guys, check out the tent of the Lord. Check it out. Who's in the middle? Their commander. Who is it? God. Well, what's it sound like down there? It sounds like zombie apocalypse. Everyone's like, It's like all of a sudden it's like Frankenstein lives in it. Everybody's moaning and complaining. But can't that be us? Could you imagine if they came in and we're like, oh, but don't listen to that girl because he's just, mm -mm, oh, and oh, that thing. Oh, and that guy goes on forever. And oh man, and oh this, and oh that, and oh this, and you know, it's like we play that kind of game. And someone came in to decide whether or not this is a good family to be a part of, and they're like, mm, I ain't adopting this family. That's what displeased them. It literally, by the way, brought in his ear for evil. It literally hurt God's ears. See the idea? I understand this. You can't grieve someone that doesn't love you. No, you can irritate him, you can bother him, you can frustrate him, but you can only grieve who loves you. We're hurting God's ears when we're complaining for the God who gave us everything. So his nostrils started glowing. His anger was aroused, and the fire of the Lord burned the outskirts of the camp. And so the people cried out to Moses. We need to recognize that in Hebrew 12, 29, it says our God is a consuming fire. And that's good news. And God wants that fire. Now, by the way, that fire might come in, the, in packaged as a trial. We're aware that God calls them fiery trials for a reason. He's told that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. That fire is there to remove the dross. So we called the place burning. This was the place where God burned the outskirts of my camp. And I realized that everything's tested by fire. The way that we build in 1 Corinthians 3, the fact that God himself is such a thing, whether that is that various trial, God has a burning. It tells us, with some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save as pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments that are defiled by the flesh. And in fact, unfortunately, this is just the beginning of a greater failure we're going to see soon. But I don't want to be there. I don't want my name in this. How about you? But I do want this burning. Because I want my heart to burn for God. And I want my heart to burn for him with a passion that is unquenchable by anything this world has to offer. And for that to happen, he's going to have to start smoking my outskirts. Now, I don't know what your outskirts are, but it's the thing that is farthest from the influence of God and closest to the world. 
Here's the crazy thing. The Lord could put you in the most horrendous of places and use you as a light. And it'll not be the outskirts. The outskirts is the thing that you fight God over. Think about that. If God were to say, let go, let me rebuild, let me reconstruct, let me reconfigure, and you say, I like it the way it is, and you fight him for it, that's at the outskirts. But out of his mercy, he wants to fry those outskirts. You know why? Because he loves you. Because what he wants is that part that's close. Jesus didn't die for you to send you to heaven. He died for you to be with you. Heaven's just the product of it. And the difference is, I don't wait to die to be with him. The moment I said yes, he came. He wants to be so intimate, he came and moved into me the moment I said yes. You can't get more intimate than that. He's like, how close do you want me to be? As close as you can be. God's like, I'm inside you now. So it's fun to walk around Camden and tell him I'm possessed. I'm possessed by the creator of the universe. Who you got? Oh, that wimpy little demon thing? My God created him. And he's the one possesses me. Let me ask you. If we're going to go to the table of the Lord now in communion... And we are to to first analyze, take a careful look at ourselves. Can we give God the permission? He might burn it anyways. But wouldn't it be better if we gave him permission? Can we give God permission even if we don't know what's at the outskirts of our camp? Because our heart is so dreadfully wicked, it actually says deceitful above all things. Our heart lies more than Satan does. How horrible is that? No wonder why he has to give us a new one. Can we just say, Lord, fry the outskirts of my camp then? Whatever it is. Because I trust that what you want is that part that clings to you. That part that craves to be at the center with you. Hey, and if if you're in one of those situations, and I know some of you are in it, where the Lord is becoming the center of your camp right now, don't be afraid of what flees. Stop trying to chase back what's running away and enjoy the center. Because I guarantee you, if you celebrate at the center, that which will say yes will come back. And that which leaves and stays gone should stay gone. It's like God putting an antibiotic in you and the the things which want to destroy you flee and die. And then you're like, "Mm, I miss that cancer. I miss that flu. I haven't thrown up in a long time. God's like, I want it gone permanently. And can I say, the problem with something like a complaining spirit is it's contagious. More than a praise spirit is, unless our hearts belong to the Lord. Because it's just like stinking up a room. Everybody's going to smell it sooner or later. But when we start to praise, God calls us into the joy. What we are is reminded that there's another choice. Or that God would slay any discontented, distant part of us that wouldn't want to be near the center of the camp where he belongs. Lastly, if you've not accepted this gift of Jesus Christ, maybe you're in a position where this whole thing is really new to you, and here we are looking at something that took place 3,400 years ago. Let me make simple this. Jesus died for your guilt and mine. 
And that's half the story. You want his innocence? He offers it to you. You want that person who's in bondage? And maybe you don't even feel like you're in bondage. He'll reveal you are. You want that person gone? He'll take care of that. But he doesn't remove, he replaces. And he wants to make you a new creation, free to dance, free to sing, free to praise, free to serve, free to celebrate. Free to just be free. To be used the way he intended. But that's the choice you have to make. So in essence, every one of us here has the option today to say, Lord, I want to give you permission to do what you want to do. If you've not accepted Jesus, today's the day. Out comes the wrecking ball. And you go, that scares me. Don't worry. What's on the other side of the doors of your lift is infinitely better than what's been dwelling in there. First and foremost, it's Him. But if you are going to say yes to Jesus today, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And all you have to do at the end is say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. But as a Christian, and I'm going to start with us first, I want to lead us in a simple prayer, a dangerous prayer, to give God the permission to take out the torch and to burn all of our outskirts before it becomes any worse that what we would crave is just Him. Fair enough? Pray with me, would you please? So Lord, we come to you now more than just out of a ritual, more than just out of practice. With clear, Lord, the history of these people, very much like our own history, so quick to find fault, so quick to complain, so slow to be a part of the answer, so quick to be a part of the problem. I confess to you, Lord, that's so me. So me. And Lord, I just pray right now. I pray for every person here that makes claim to you as Christ, as Savior, as Lord. First of all, I want to stand in the gap and ask for your forgiveness for where our eyes have been on that which you have not given us. That makes a mockery of your provision to a world that we tell you're enough to. God, I pray today for every one of us here that makes claim to you, Lord, that you, that we would be just happy to surrender, Lord, even if it's a bit fearful because we're not even sure, or maybe we are and we know what it might be. We give you permission to fry the outskirts of our camp. Those things, Lord, that will never draw near. Those things that will only seek to introduce more discontent that will only seek to grow in its complaining and its dissatisfaction and its disenchantment. Lord God, I pray you would fry that, that there would be no part of that in our hearts, no part at all, no part of that in our minds, but that we would have a trumpet-ready life that is ready for your call to go where you call us to. And for that to happen, Lord, just kill the flab, fry the flab in our, in our faith, Lord. The part that will never draw near. You've told us about our own flesh nature, that it is not subject to you, nor can it be. 
Our flesh nature will never convert. So, Lord, it needs to die. And so, Lord, as Christians, as people who claim you as our Lord, as people, Father, who claim you as our Father, infinitely wise, almighty, completely loving, we give you permission to fry the outskirts of our camp. And in that, Lord, grow greater fruitfulness of that which seeks to cling to the center where you are. Where you would be enthroned upon every aspect of our lives. Let our life be one where when the challenge is hit, we would be quick to call out to you, not to someone else and figure out how someone else is going to meet that need, but to cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm thirsty. Lord, I'm hungry. Lord, I'm confused. Lord, I'm fearful. Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, I'm lonely. Whatever it is, please be my answer. So, Lord, we pray this right now as as we trust that you would only do this for our benefit. So perform the surgery that is necessary now, we pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, saints, give me a good, confident Amen. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone who is still deciding whether or not they want to say yes to you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them that need. And if you're not sure, you can walk out of here, sure. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. At the end, I ask for you to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, yes, that's my prayer now. And here it is. God, I'm not perfect. You know what I know it. And you tell me that that my sin, Lord, must be punished. Whether you so love me that you punished my sin on your only begotten Son, Jesus, the Christ's cross. That's half the story. So all my guilt was paid for. All my crimes were punished. All my wrong was settled. But as you promised, Jesus, three days later you rose from the dead. And now you give me this opportunity to say yes to you, not just as Savior, but also as Lord, as love, as light, as life, to be now my everything. And though I may not understand everything, I understand this much. If you really love me that much and you want to be with me, I would be a fool to say no. So I say yes. I say yes to your payment for me on the cross. I say yes to your ransom of me there. I say yes, Lord, to your perfection, your purity for my filth. I say yes, Lord, to your lordship now as my living king. Lead me, Lord, into that which brings you pleasure and makes me a blessing to those around me. And with that, Lord, since I'm saying yes, I know you're going to fry the outskirts of my camp, and for me that might be a whole lot. But let my life be one, Lord, that celebrates now. As I hand myself to you, in Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that, I ask you to say, Amen.